lift you up in this place. God, we thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people and that you're present here with us today. God, I ask that you would speak clearly and, and honestly to our hearts, that we would have ears that could hear the words that you would have to say. God, I ask that if there's anything that I say today that isn't of you, that it would be immediately forgotten. God, that we would just um, come to see you better today. We love you so much. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So as Alex said, we are continuing on in the second or the third week of this series. I'm glad you asked. And we're talking about this question of why God would allow suffering. Um, and a lot of people ask this question, but we're specifically doing this question because of the youth. And I worked in youth ministry for almost 15 years, so I was loving it. Like Thomas and Maude, like, seriously, that's probably my favorite part of the whole time I've been in England, probably, is seeing you guys share. And I, and I mean that actually quite sincerely, because I just, like, it encourages me to see you guys stepping up. And I get nervous, too, so I know how you feel. And I just love that you did it anyway, so. Awesome. But what I'd like to do um, to begin this conversation is I'd like to think about the idea of expectations. We can. And I know you might be thinking, what do, what do expectations have to do with suffering? But if you just hang with me for a minute, I think you'll see how this is going to come together. Can we do that? Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Um, so I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. And one Christmas, when he was about 11, he decided that he was going to get my parents and I Christmas gifts. And he wrapped them up, and he came out, um, and this isn't wrapped, but he came out with a box. And he handed it to us, and I don't know, maybe it was a week or so before Christmas, it was definitely not Christmas Day. And so he comes out and he hands us all a box, and he's, he's super excited, he says, can you guess what it is, can you guess, can you guess? And me being the excellent older sister that I am, was not the least bit interested in his stupid box. But nonetheless, he's like, come on, shake it, see if you can guess what it is. And so I'm like, if it'll make you stop talking, I'll shake it. And so I... I'm like, I don't know, Randy, it sounds broken, okay? Just put it under the tree. Let's get on with this. And so he puts it under the tree, but literally every single day he would come in and say, do you have a guess? Do you know what it is yet? And sometimes he'd walk into the room and he'd just saunter in, smiling. Going, <laughs> we're like, you're not funny. Like, I'm not in the least bit amused by this, but he did not care. And he just for days and days and days walking around always with the bus. Do you know, do you know? And finally Christmas Day comes. And he's like jumping out of his skin. He's so excited. We have to open his gift first. So I'm like, fine, please, just make it end. Like, who cares about this? And so we're sitting there, and just before we're about to open it, he goes, wait. Just shake it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> just, and can you guess? Can you guess? And I don't even know if I shook mine. He might have come over and like forced me to shake it. <laughs> she was really not having it, right? And so finally, finally, we open the gift. And when I open it up, there's a shoebox inside, which this is not a shoebox, but that's okay. Um, we open it up, and I take the lid off, and what I found inside was a card and some rocks. <laughs> and so I open the card, and inside, the card says, Merry Christmas, love Ronnie. That's it. 
whole gift. The entire thing. And he goes, and he, and I look up at my brother, and he's just beaming, he's just rolling on the floor, laughing like this is the best thing that has ever happened at Christmas. And I'm looking at him, he goes, you didn't guess, did you? You had no idea, you could not guess. And I'm thinking, you're right. I would have never guessed that you would give me a card and some rocks for Christmas. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, the, what's the problem with this scenario? Was it really that my 11-year-old brother gave me just a card for Christmas? See, the problem wasn't the card, right? If Ronnie had just walked up to me on Christmas Day and said, oh, Chrissy, you're such a great sister, and I love you so much. Here's a Christmas card. I would have loved that. I would have thought, oh, that's so thoughtful. That's so nice. It's the expectation that he spent days and days, shake the box. Like, who cares about the box, right? It's the expectation that something was there. And so it, it, it affected, my expectations affected the way I responded to the circumstance, didn't it? And the same thing happens with the way that we relate to God. Our expectations of who God is affects the way that we relate to him. It's true today, and it was true when Jesus was alive. The Jews of Jesus' time had expectations of what the Messiah would be like, and it affected the way that they responded to Jesus. And so I want to spend a few minutes, if I can, with you this morning, looking at what are these expectations that that people have had, or the Jews specifically had about Jesus, And how did those expectations affect the way that they responded to him? Can we do that? Just a few minutes? Okay, so if you have a Bible, we're going to jump around a little, but it's okay. It's worth it. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. If you've got the the little blue or green ones, it's page 720. So I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 35. Now, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is what the Jews would have, that's, that was their scripture. That is what they read. That was their word from God. And so the Jews would have understood that the Old Testament provided promises from God about a Messiah, a Savior, who would come to rescue them. This is what they would have understood that the scripture said to them, that God was promising to send someone. And as they read the Old Testament, as they read passages like a couple that we're going to look at, they would have understood that God was giving them a picture of what the Messiah would be like and what he would do so that they could recognize him when he came. And so they would have read things like Isaiah chapter 35, looking at verses 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. You can turn over a couple, just a few pages, it's page 749, Isaiah chapter 61. In the first two verses, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And it goes on from there. You see, these passages, and there's many more, these are just a few, but these passages begin to give us a picture of what they were expecting the Messiah to be like. But you have to understand the the circumstances of the Jews who were reading these, these scriptures. You see, they'd spent hundreds of years in exile and captivity, and by the time Jesus began his ministry, they were living under Roman rule and oppression. They were desperate for freedom. They were desperate for these words that, that Jesus, that someone, a Messiah, would come to set the prisoners free. They said, yes, 
This is what we want. And so it's understandable then that their view of what the Messiah would be was more of a conquering king. Yes, they thought that the Messiah would, would heal people, but probably less important than that, what they wanted was someone who would come from God and who would raise up, uh, stir up a rebellion, who would raise an army, who would overthrow an empire, that this is what they believed about the Messiah. And so it's into this um, expectation that Jesus begins his ministry. And you can flip over to the New Testament to Matthew. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Matthew. Uh, You can go to chapter 11. We'll look at a couple other things, but you can go to chapter 11. Page 976. So it's into this that Jesus comes in, this expectation for a conquering king. And Matthew begins to tell us the story of Jesus. And he begins to tell us not only what Jesus has been doing, but he tells us how the people are responding to Jesus. Right? And so if you, if you go back to chapter 8, I'm not going to read all of it for you because there isn't enough time. But you can go back and read it. If you start in chapter 8, Matthew begins to tell you all of these things that Jesus is doing. That Jesus is healing people. That he's casting out demons. That he's, he's giving the blind sight. Right? He begins to do these things. And then in Matthew chapter 8, around verse 27, Matthew tells the story of the disciples, and they're in a boat, and they're, and, they're, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. Some of you may be familiar with this story, right? The storm comes up, and they're afraid that they're going to die, so they wake up Jesus, who's asleep in the front, and they say, Jesus, help us. It says that Jesus speaks to the storm, and the waves and the wind, they calm. And the response of his disciples in verse 27 is, who is this man that even the waves and the wind obey him? Who is this man? If you flip over to, um, to Matthew chapter 9, in the very beginning of those first few verses, if you were here last week, you'll recognize it's the story of that paralyzed man and his four friends, and they rip the hole and he comes down. And Jesus doesn't heal him right away, does he? What does he do? He forgives his sins. He forgives his sins, right? And we know from last week, we know that the response of the teachers of the law and the religious people, the response was, who does he think he is? Only God does that. Does he think he's God? Who is he that he thinks he can forgive sins? If you go down a little further in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, you see Matthew talking about Jesus having dinner with, with sinners and tax collectors and bad people and outcasts and people that don't fit into the religious mold. And the religious people, they go to Jesus' disciples and they say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? A few more verses, some more religious people come and they say, Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Like all the, you're out eating and drinking and partying and having a good time and we're, we're fasting. Why don't you fast like we do? That's what religious people do. If you go down even further than Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, uh, Jesus has just cast out a demon. And again, the religious people are there. Isn't it fun? It's a theme here. I should have preached on this. There's a theme here. Right? Again, the religious leaders come and they, and they say, oh, well, he's casting out demons, but it's by the power of the prince of demons that he casts out demons. You see, over and over and over again, their responses to Jesus, in the face of all that he's doing, their responses is, who is he? Why is he doing this? Where is his power coming from? Why isn't he doing the things that we're doing? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Matthew tells us that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. He spent two chapters in his book 
to tell us these things. And when you read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, does it sound a little bit like we read in Isaiah? Does it sound a little similar? He's healing people. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. See, Matthew is reminding us who are reading this story of Jesus, he's reminding us Jesus is doing a lot of the things that you would expect and look for the Messiah to do, and yet the response of the people doesn't seem to match what you would expect that they would have for here's the one. It's almost as if there's some problem with their expectations, isn't there? Even though he seems to be doing the things that the Messiah would do, it doesn't quite seem to look the way they thought it was going to look. And this, this story comes to a bit of a, a climax in Matthew chapter 11, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Matthew chapter 11, is page 976, uh, beginning in verse 2. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who, was, who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It all comes to a point here. Now what's happening in this story? Matthew tells us that there's a man named John who's in prison. In order to understand this, we need to understand who John is. This isn't just any John. This is John the Baptist. This is the John who had a, who had a ministry long before Jesus actually began his own ministry. This is the John who was proclaiming uh, that Jesus was the one. This is the John who was telling people to turn from their sin and to seek repentance. And so he, he preached a lot about sin. And basically, he made King Herod angry because he spoke against his lifestyle and what he was doing. And so Herod had him arrested and threw him into prison. Now, what's interesting about this question, though, because he, he, it says that, that he's in prison. He hears about what the Messiah is doing. It says he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? This is a crazy question because this is coming from the same John who was in the middle of a sermon and saw Jesus walking by and stopped everything and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the same John who baptized Jesus, and when he brought him out of the water, a dove came down, the heavens parted, and the voice of God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is the same John who literally, he's, he's cousins. Like if there's anybody who knows Jesus, it's got to be his, his family who, who dedicated, he lived in the desert, he wore crazy clothes, he ate crazy food, and he dedicated his entire life and his ministry to pointing the way to Jesus and saying to everyone who would listen, this is the one. And now he's in prison and his question, using the same language that he would have used in preaching about Jesus, he sends his disciples and says, ask Jesus, are you the one? What would take someone so far in a journey? Our assumption might be that it's because, well, obviously, Chrissy, he's suffering. He's in prison. He realizes that it's unlikely, apart from a miracle, that he's ever going to get out of this alive. So obviously, he's, he's struggling with his faith, or he's struggling to know if he was right about Jesus because he's suffering. But I actually think we would be wrong to think that. 
Because look at what it says. Look again at verse 2. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. It doesn't say, as soon as John went to prison, he said, Jesus, where are you? It doesn't say that. I don't actually know how long he was in prison at this point. It says that when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, it wasn't that he was suffering. It was that he heard what Jesus was doing, and he realized that Jesus is healing people, that he's, he's releasing people from, from uh, sickness and disease. He's raising the dead. He's preaching the good news. He hears all of these things, and he realizes that Jesus has not come to help him. You see, the interesting thing about suffering is it seems to bubble to the surface our expectations about God. It's, it's easy to follow God or it's easy to believe in the idea of God when things are good. It's easy to say that God is sovereign and he rules all things when the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and you've got a nice meal on the table and you're, and you're feeling happy, isn't it? But it's much, much more difficult when things aren't going the way that we expected them to go. And what happens is it begins to bubble to the surface our expectations. Even John the Baptist, even the one who pointed the way to Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, it began to bubble to the surface the fact that he had an expectation for what the Messiah would do. And the reality was different than what he expected it to be. We understand that, don't we? We have friends and family members who understand that, don't we? I've had conversations this week with people who've said to me, why does God allow these things to happen? I can't believe in him. Not because bad things happen, because let's be honest, nobody gets a free pass on suffering. doesn't matter if you're a teenager or if you're a little older like me. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter how much money you do or don't have. It doesn't matter how well educated you are. It doesn't actually even matter whether or not you believe in God. You know atheists still suffer, right? You don't get a free pass on suffering. The problem with suffering is not actually the suffering because we all at some point are faced with suffering and we all know people who go through suffering. The problem with suffering is our expectations of what God is supposed to do in our suffering. The problem that we have with suffering, the thing that stirs up doubt and disbelief is when God does not show up in the way that we expect him to. It's easy when we're thinking about having to talk to people about suffering, it's easy to get trapped into this idea that God explained why it all happens. But I, I actually don't think that most people really need you to explain why, nor do they believe that you know why. What they really want to know is why is God acting in a way that is different than what I thought he was going to act. It's an issue of what they see about God, not an issue of the suffering, because we all suffer. Matthew tells us that Jesus replied to John, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The first time I read that, I almost thought it was a bit insulting. Like, here's all the things I'm doing, not for you. 
Which, it does kind of feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? When God doesn't show up in the way that we want him to, why is he show up for everyone else but us? Like, sometimes that, that does feel that way. And, and the, the hard truth of this answer that Jesus gives to John is that he's not coming. Like Alex said, uh, Scripture doesn't lie to us. It doesn't try to make it you know, candy-coated, easier to go down. But that's not all that he's saying. Jesus isn't just saying, sorry, dude, not going to happen this time. He's, he's actually giving John an invitation. He's giving John an invitation. First, Jesus is giving John an invitation to let go of his expectations. You see, what does he say there? He, he gives this list of things, and it sounds like just a list of things that he's doing, but it's actually not a list. It's actually not a list. He's quoting Isaiah. You remember that? We read those in the beginning. He's quoting Isaiah, chapter 35 and chapter 61. He's quoting Isaiah to John, who would have preached those words, who would have known those words. He's reminding John of the scripture, and he's saying to John, remember that this is what the scripture says about who I am. And John, you know that I am doing those things. It's just that it doesn't look the way you thought. It is an invitation to let go of his expectations of what he thinks that God is supposed to be like. He's inviting John to remember, this is what what the Messiah is. And you know that I am doing those things, John. I'm inviting you to do that. And then the second part of that, that invitation is to let go of his expectations and then to see Jesus as he is. What does he say after this list of things? He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This word blessed, it means happy or joyful. What Jesus is literally saying is that there is joy for the one who can see him as he is rather than stumbling over their own expectations of what they want him to be. I want to say this again because this is so important. This is the key that that helps us to understand this, that there is joy for the person who can see Jesus as he is rather than stumbling over our own expectations of what we want him to be. Do you understand this? Are you with me? Jesus says, John, you can find joy in your suffering if you can just see me for what I am, rather than living in the expectation of what you wish I was doing, but it's not actually the truth about who I am. is the difficulty in our suffering. This is where doubt and disbelief come from, because we, we stumble over our own expectations of Jesus rather than being willing to see him as he is, rather than being willing to understand that maybe we don't understand. That actually, Maudlin, it's okay to say, I don't know, because I'm not actually God. That's actually a valid answer. I couldn't tell you why every bad thing happens. Well, I understand who Jesus is, and so I trust him anyway. You see, any conversation that you want to have with someone about suffering, it has to begin at this place of expectations. Because all of our doubt and our disbelief begin with our expectations of God. And so any conversation that we have with another person about suffering, 
It has to, like Jesus, it has to, it has to mimic this invitation to let go of expectations and to see Jesus as he is. It's the only way to navigate suffering. Now, I realize that the question that might be rolling around in your mind is how is, there, how is seeing Jesus as he is going to bring me joy in the midst of suffering? I'm still suffering. How does John feel comforted by the fact that Jesus isn't coming? Because the truth is Jesus did not come. In fact, Jesus, uh, he, he almost eulogizes him immediately after this. If you keep reading, he talks about John and he praises his ministry and the things that he did. It's almost like he's saying, this was a great man and his life is coming to an end and his ministry is coming to an end. Jesus did not intervene for John. So how is there joy in this? And I think that Jesus even answers this question for us in John chapter 16, verse 33. In John chapter 16, verse 33, what Jesus says to us is, in this world, you will have trouble. He's not going to lie to us. He's not going to pretend, you know, we're the ones, if we're honest, us church people, we're the ones who try to sell the pretty picture. We're, We're guilty of that sometimes. Just follow Jesus and it'll all be better. We want that to be true, but it's not actually what Jesus ever said, is it? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. You see, what happens when you see Jesus as he is, is you understand that he is a loving and gracious father, that he is a good God, and he absolutely is just, and that this is not the end of the story. Sometimes he does show up. Sometimes he does heal. Sometimes he does restore relationships. Sometimes that does happen. But even when it doesn't happen, we have hope and we live with a certainty of joy because we know that this is not the end of the story. That my God is, is, is eternally just. That he is infinitely loving and gracious. And that no matter what happens, at some point in this life or the next, all will be made right. That what has been broken will be made whole. That what is wrong will be made right. That what is unjust will be be made just. It's not the end of the story. Paul says in Thessalonians, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. It isn't the end. It isn't only. And so we find joy in seeing Jesus as he is. Because instead of stumbling over, I wish God did this. And why didn't God do that? He must not really love me. Instead, I lean into the truth of who God is. And I say he is just. And he is good. And he is righteous. And he is loving. And I know. I have a certainty within me that regardless of what my circumstances tell me, I know that he is sovereign. I know that he is powerful. And I know that all things will be made right the answer to this question of suffering is not how do we make the suffering end it's how do we adjust our expectations so that we can see Jesus as he truly is it's only then that we're able to navigate our suffering and live with joy in the midst of suffering, not because the suffering goes away, but because we have joy in the circumstances. I want to close by sharing a story with you of what it looks like to, to live in this way. There's a man named, um, let's say it right, there's a man named Horatio Spafford. He's an American. Uh, he lived a long time ago. And he lived in the city of Chicago. 
he was a lawyer and he had a successful business and he was married his wife's name was Anna and they had five kids four girls and one little boy <clears throat> and when his son was very very young he got pneumonia and he passed away and then a short time after that there was a great fire in the city of Chicago and burned that ma like massively wiped out the city and so he lost most of his business so he went through this tumultuous period of pain and suffering in his life but eventually he was able to rebuild his business and so his wife and his four daughters they decided as a family that they were going to go to Europe on a holiday and so he decided that um, he had some last-minute business that he needed to take care of so he decided he was going to stay behind and he put his wife and his four daughters on a, a French ocean liner to cross over the Atlantic and then he would follow a few days later about four days into the uh, ocean crossing that his wife and his daughters were on the French ocean liner uh, ran into collided with a Scottish ship that had an iron hull so it was apparent that the French liner was in grave danger the people that were on the ship were in, there was about 300 and some people and so this, we're told that Anna comes to the deck and she brings her four daughters on the deck and they kneel on the deck and they pray and they say, God, if it's your will, please spare us. But if not, help us to endure whatever's going to come. And it said that after within, I think it took about 12 minutes for the ship to sink. More than 200 people died on that ship. And when the rescue boats came out, these small boats, they came out and they found a woman who was floating on a piece of wood and it was Anna. She was all alone because all four of her children had drowned. And so they take her and she lands in Cardiff and she sends a telegram to her husband that says, saved alone, what shall I do? And so of course he, Horatio, runs out and he books the first passage he can on a ship so that he can meet up with his wife. And about four days into the journey, the captain of the ship calls him into his cabin and says this is the place where the ship went down. And we're told that it's at that place that Horatio Spafford, standing on the deck of the ship, began to write the words to, it is well with my soul. And I tell you that, not just to tell you a sad story, but I tell you that to help you to understand that this is what it looks like to be able to fully see Jesus who he is, that in the midst of our suffering, that in the midst of incomprehensible pain, that when we let go of our expectations and we're able to see Jesus as he is, then we too can say, it is well with my soul. The worship team can come up and they're going to pray. I'm just going to close us in prayer before we have just a little time to worship. God, we love you so much this morning, and we thank you that you are faithful, and you are good, and you are just. God, I thank you that you do care about our suffering. I thank you that you, that you see us in our pain, that you recognize our pain, and that is important to you, God. And I thank you that you are even understanding of our misunderstandings, that you are gracious with us when we don't really fully comprehend who you are and what you're doing in our lives. God, I ask this morning that even as we may, um, some of us here may be in a place where we're grieving or suffering, God, or, or, we, or we know someone who is, 
God, I ask that even in this space that you might help us, because it's so difficult to do, but God, that you might help us this morning to let go of our expectations, to let go of our preconceived notion and our picture of what you're supposed to be, but instead, God, that we would lean into the truth of who you are. Jesus, that you would reveal yourselves to us today, that you would help us to see you, that you would help us to trust you. God, and I pray that as we leave this place, we wouldn't leave feeling burdened or heavy, but that we would leave with hope because we have had a glimpse of the Savior. God, I just pray that you would um, just comfort us and give us words for conversations that may come in the next days and weeks. We just worship you in this place, Jesus.